A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Polita Clark, a business columnist at the Financial Times, filling in for Gideon Rackman, who is away on leave. In this week's podcast, we're looking at the new politics of climate change. My guest is Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University and one of the world's best-known climate scientists. So what has changed about the politics of climate change? Scientists have been warning of the dangers of global warming for more than 40 years, but for a long time, their cautions were ignored. The idea that climate change was even happening was still contentious in the 1990s when Professor Mann published what's been called the most controversial chart in science, the so-called hockey stick. It confirmed something that today we take for granted. Burning fossil fuels releases greenhouse gases that raise global temperatures. His work was recognised in 2007, along with other scientists contributing to the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports. The panel was awarded that year's Nobel Peace Prize, along with former US Vice President Al Gore. But as Mr Gore said in his acceptance speech, world leaders were slow to act. Too many of the world's leaders are still best described in the words Winston Churchill applied to those who ignored Adolf Hitler's threat. And I quote, they go on in strange paradox, decided only to be undecided, resolved to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, all-powerful to be impotent. By 2015, leaders had agreed the Paris Accord, an international pact aimed at keeping global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius and preferably 1.5 degrees. Never in the history of the UN has it been possible to bring together 170 states to sign an agreement. So this is now more than a commitment. This will be a text irreversibly written into international law. But action to curb emissions was still slow and a new movement of environmental campaigners began to take to the streets. We can't save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to be changed. Everything needs to change and it has to start today. So everyone out there, it is now time for civil disobedience. It's time to rebel. We are Today, outright climate denialism is fading. But the debate over how to deal with global warming is far from over, especially when it comes to renewable energy. The blackouts that are in Texas are being made worse by the failure of wind turbines, many freezing in the icy weather, cutting output in half, and it's raising questions about the Lone Star State's increasing reliance on renewable energy. Critics' claims that frozen wind turbines caused the Texas blackouts are familiar to Professor Mann. In fact, these arguments feature in a book he's just published called The New Climate War, which is about what he calls a new form of soft denialism slowing action to cut emissions. I started our conversation by asking him to explain exactly what his hockey stick chart showed and why it caused him so much trouble. More than two decades ago, back in 1998, my co-authors and I published the now famous hockey stick article in the journal Nature, 
we didn't quite appreciate at the time how iconic the hockey stick would become. And the bottom line is this chart demonstrated the temperature trends of the past thousand years. And what it showed was that the upward spike, which you could think of as sort of the blade of a hockey stick, the sharp upturn in temperatures of the last century is unprecedented um, as far back as we could go a thousand years. And so it was pretty easy to understand what this graph was telling us, that there's something unprecedented taking place today in our climate, the warming of the planet. And by implication, um, it probably isn't a coincidence that it coincides with the Industrial Revolution and the increase in carbon pollution from the burning of fossil fuels and other human activities. And so it did become a target of attack by fossil fuel interests and those advocating for them. And I often found myself at the center of the contentious debate over human-caused climate change. It's not where I expected to find myself when I double majored in applied math and physics in college and went off to study theoretical physics and then got into the modeling of Earth's climate system. Little did I realize that that was a journey that would ultimately lead me to the center of one of the most contentious societal debates we've ever had. But indeed, it's where I found myself and I've come to embrace that role. I consider myself privileged to be in that position despite the slings and arrows that I've had to endure along the way. You actually wrote a, a book about those slings and arrows. We forget now, that, but back in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, the level of climate denialism was uh, really quite different. Could you just give us some examples of how extreme the attacks were on you around that time? Yeah, so indeed, I detail my experiences in my previous book, The uh, Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. And shortly after the graph was published in the late 1990s, it very quickly became this fairly prominent symbol in the climate change debate. And I found myself uh, attacked on the editorial pages of conservative newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, by Fox News. I found myself in uh, hostile congressional hearings with uh, powerful Senate committee chairs and uh, House committee chairs holding hearings um, in an attempt to discredit the hockey stick and to discredit me. Also death threats. Oh, absolutely. I received an envelope with a white powder in the mail that had to be investigated by the FBI. I've had threats made against me, against my family. And, you know, I guess it now comes with the territory. If you play a prominent role, as I have in the climate change arena, you find yourself at the center of a fairly concerted effort to discredit the underlying science because its implications are inconvenient to some powerful interests, the fossil fuel industry and those promoting them. That's sort of the old climate war when the basic science of climate change was under attack. And I argue in, in my new book, In the New Climate War, that we've now sort of moved into a new phase where you just can't deny that climate change is happening. People can see it with their own eyes. And so the attacks they haven't gone away, but they've changed flavor. Well, that's exactly what I want to ask you about. I mean, it, just before we leave the hockey stick, it just seems to me that you basically showed that climate change was happening, it was real, temperatures were rising, and humans were the cause. That was the problem with the hockey stick, it seemed to me. Well, th that's absolutely right. In our article, we actually did make the connection. We looked at the different factors that could possibly explain 
this warming. We looked at natural factors like volcanoes or fluctuations in the brightness of the sun. And we have some documentation of how those factors have changed over the past few centuries. And then we looked at the human factor of increasing greenhouse gas concentrations. And the punchline is that it's only the latter. Only that increase in greenhouse gas concentrations could explain the warming that we've seen. And so we did make that link to uh, human fossil fuel burning. Okay, now in your new book, you say we've basically reached a new point in the fight to combat climate change, where the forces of outright climate denialism are fading, along with the war on science. But in its place, there's a new war on climate action, or what you call a softer form of denialism that you describe as climate inactivism. What exactly do you mean by inactivism? And what are some examples of that? Yeah, so by inactivism, I mean an agenda of inaction, the forces of inaction, uh, fossil fuel interests, those doing their bidding, they don't really care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They want us disengaged and not out there demanding policy action. And so they've used an array of fairly insidious tactics as denial no longer becomes credible, at least hard outright denial of the basic evidence. They've turned to softer denial. Well, yes, maybe it's real and and caused by human activity, but it's not a problem. Or the real solution isn't renewable energy, uh, isn't reducing our addiction to fossil fuels, but just allowing the economy to flourish and we'll figure out a way to solve this problem down the road with technology. Or in some cases, trying to create division within the ranks of climate advocates, in particular over our individual lifestyle choices choices, trying to make it about individuals rather than systemic change and getting us fighting with each other over our carbon purity. What's your carbon footprint? Do you fly? Are you a vegan? And then finally, one of the most insidious tactics of all is despair mongering. If they can convince us that it's actually too late to do anything about the problem, ironically, it potentially leads us down that same path of inaction as outright denial. And to some extent, the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists in the book, have actually fanned the flames of doomism to convince us that there's nothing we can do about it anyway. Doomism, I think, is a really interesting example. But just, just before we get onto that, I think a lot of people will be quite intrigued to hear you say that the focus on personal behavior, vegan diets, flight shaming, is part of the inactivist problem. Are you really saying that it's okay to fly and eat burgers if you care about climate change? <laughs> no, so it's it's more nuanced than that. And in order to appreciate this, it's useful to look at some of the tactics that have been used in past uh, deflection campaign. For example, the beverage industry in the early 1970s when I was growing up, when I was like five or six years old, there was this very powerful commercial that played on American television. It's called the Crying Indian Ad. Uh, it was a public service announcement. It was a Native American And it ends with a tear coming down his face because of all the can and bottle litter that he encounters as he's canoeing down this river. And so the commercial ends with this single tear running down his face and the tagline, people cause pollution, only people can fix it. And it felt like this very empowering ad that uh, galvanized a whole generation of people to be environmental advocates. But it turns out it was actually a PR campaign hatched on Madison Avenue by Coca-Cola and the beverage industry. 
they didn't want to see bottle bills pass, five or 10 cent deposit on bottles and cans that would require us to return them and then they would be processed by the beverage industry. It would clean up the problem in a systemic way, but it would hurt their bottom line. It would hurt their profits. So instead, they funded this major advertising campaign to convince us that we didn't need to pass bottle bills. It was just a matter of us being better people. And it was very successful. We never got a national bottle bill in the United States. And as a consequence of this very successful deflection campaign, we have one of our other great global environmental crises today, the plastic pollution crisis. Um, And we have them to thank for it. So today, the fossil fuel industry has used that playbook. And I'll be blunt, British Petroleum gave us the first individual carbon footprint calculator back in the early 2000s. That's because British Petroleum and other fossil fuel companies do want us focused on our carbon footprint, not theirs. Theirs is the overwhelmingly larger carbon footprint, but they want us focused on our role rather than calling for policy action, carbon pricing, subsidies for renewable energy, systemic changes that'll get us on the path that we need to be on. But let me make one other point here because you allude to this. We should, of course, do these things, right? (laughs) You know, there are all these things we can do in our everyday lives that reduce our environmental and carbon footprint and they make us healthier, they save us money, they make us feel better about ourselves, they set a good example for other people. So we should, of course, do all those things. What we can't allow is for that to be framed somehow as a substitute for the systemic changes that we need as well. Right, and by systemic changes, you're talking about things like eliminating fossil fuel subsidies or introducing meaningful carbon pricing. And I think one of the very interesting bits of research that you cite in the book is that the more that people think they're doing personally, the less likely they are to actually support those more important broad systemic measures. Yeah, it's actually fascinating because there's there's some conflicting studies in the social science literature. There are studies that suggest that, you know, if we do something, even some small thing, it can get us going down a path of increasingly greater engagement. We do one thing, we realize it, 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 it makes things better, so we try other things and we become more and more engaged. So there is some evidence that that's one way things can play out. But at the same time, there are also studies that you allude to that there's sort of a crowding out effect where, you know, we basically have a reservoir of emotional energy to apply to any particular problem in our lives. And there's a tendency for us to think that if we're doing a whole lot already, that we shouldn't be asked to do yet more. And so, you know, if we're doing things in our everyday lives that reduce our carbon footprint, and then we're told, in addition, we have to pay a carbon tax, say, that feels like, well, why should I have to do that? I'm already doing all these other things. So what it suggests is that we really need to be very cautious. We do want people to do things in their everyday lives that get them more engaged. And ultimately, that leads to collective action. But what we can't allow people to think is that by doing those things, they're solving the problem alone. So it's sort of a fine line that we walk here in the communication space when it comes to the the messaging that'll get us, you know, on the right path. Yeah. And your points about climate doomism, I think are very interesting. I mean, you're talking about the exaggeration of the climate threat. And 
At one point in the book, you say that that could actually pose a bigger threat to action than outright denialism. And you're especially critical of writers such as David Wallace Wells, who wrote The Uninhabitable Earth, which is probably until now one of their better known books on climate change recently. And also Jonathan Franzen, the novelist who has written repeatedly in The New Yorker that he thinks we might be better off recognising climate disaster is all but certain. What's your main concern about these types of arguments? My concern, first of all, as a scientist, is any time that the science is misrepresented or distorted for a potential agenda or for a narrative, let's not call it an agenda. I mean, there are people, well-meaning people who are convinced of a certain narrative and they look for things that will reinforce that narrative. And so what we have to make sure is that people aren't distorting the evidence for their agenda. Be that an agenda of science denial, outright denialism, and I've already said that that's sort of on the wane. It's no longer quite the threat that it once was because it's become obvious to people that climate change is happening. So increasingly, you know, uh, the greater threat is the belief that it's too late to do anything. And it would be one thing if that were legitimately true. And if the science said it's too late for us to do anything about this problem, we would have to be honest about that as scientists. But the science doesn't say that. And invariably, these overly doomist narratives are premised on a distortion of the science, in particular the idea that we've warmed the planet so much that we're now going to see this dramatic release of methane, which is a powerful greenhouse gas that's currently locked in the permafrost and the frozen ground, that we've warmed the planet enough that it's going to release all that methane into the atmosphere and we're going to see a runaway warming scenario. The science in no way supports that. There is no evidence that that's happening or that that's likely to happen given any reasonable future scenarios. And so what happens is that these sort of false narratives are seized upon to justify sort of an overly doomist outlook. One prominent individual, uh, sort of a cult leader in the doomist movement who's discussed in the book, I won't mention him by name, has literally declared that runaway warming will extinguish all life on Earth within a decade. And by the way, that was about five years ago. So that means you know, mark your calendar, we've got five years left. There's no justification for that whatsoever. And it's so pernicious when a misrepresentation of the science like that is used to justify an agenda of inaction. Because if you really believe it's too late to do anything, then why do anything? So there's another new book out on climate change at the moment by Bill Gates, and he's arguing that we need big technological breakthroughs to tackle climate change. And you suggest that he is part of the forces of inactivism in part because he's a lavish funder of what you call dangerous techno fixes such as geoengineering. But Michael, you also reject the argument that today's renewable technology is in fact vastly inferior to fossil fueled electricity. And that idea is very much alive in the US this week, where Republicans have been blaming frozen wind farms for the huge power outages in Texas. The early signs are that this is untrue, but I wonder if you think that those attacks on wind farms have been potent or not. 
Yeah, so this is a classic example of what I'm talking about in the new climate war, the war on renewable energy, right? The inactivists don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They want us to remain addicted to fossil fuels. And so we've seen classic sort of new climate war messaging and rhetoric this week in response to the failure of the power grid in Texas in the face of this unusual cold air outbreak that they've had to endure. And we could talk about the role that climate change might be playing with these increased cold air outbreaks, these polar vortex events. But the bottom line is that their infrastructure in Texas failed for a number of reasons. It failed because they've chosen to remain isolated from the national electric grid because they want to avoid federal regulation. So there's no possibility of power electricity coming in from other parts of the state to fill the void if they lose theirs. They also uh, saw a failure in the distribution of their natural gas supplies. They basically didn't have enough supply. So they are largely dependent in their electricity sector on natural gas, on fossil fuels. And it turns out that renewable energy actually performed as expected. They met their commitment. Wind and solar continued to provide the expected power, but the fossil fuel part of the grid failed. And instead, what conservative politicians in Texas have been trying to do classic deflection is point the finger at wind turbines, the claim that wind turbines froze, and that was the reason for the power failure. Well, yeah, there were a few wind turbines that froze. I think it was like 10% is my understanding, around 10% of them froze up. And the reason they did that is in large part because Texas refused to listen to federal regulators, FERC, which had been telling them for years that they needed to weatherize their energy infrastructure so that would be resilient in the face of these sorts of events. And again, because of their sort of anti-regulatory stance on these things, they never did that. You know, the claim that, well, you can't have wind turbines in places that get cold. Well, tell that to Scandinavia, which meets so much of its energy demand from wind and renewables. But the main failure here was not renewable energy. It was fossil fuel energy. It was natural gas. Well, they don't want to fess up to that. The conservative Texas politicians and those promoting their messaging, the conservative media, have instead tried to convince the public that the problem was renewable energy. The uh, Green New Deal, they've tried to blame it on, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, rather than, you know, the fact that it was a failure of fossil fuel infrastructure. It's going to take a while before the post-mortem on the outages is finalized, obviously. But as you say, the early signs are that basically every form of generating capacity failed. But I just wonder if you think that the attacks that have been made on wind energy have been as effective this time around as they have been in the past or not? Well, it's a great question, you know, and it, I guess it depends on what sector of the population you're talking about. There's sort of the Trump-supporting, hardcore, anti-regulation part of the Republican Party that is so resistant to even the idea that we need to move away from fossil fuels because they've been subject to messaging by the fossil fuel industry for years. You know, the fossil fuel industry has done a very good job in weaponizing part of our electorate into opposing renewable energy and, and into thinking that to be good conservatives, they should somehow be against renewable energy 
which is, of course, absurd. If you really believe in the free market, then you would support renewable energy because it's increasingly more competitive than fossil fuel energy in the marketplace. But I think the people in the middle, sort of the confused middle, as I call them, I don't think this is working on them. I think there's enough fact-checking out there today, and I'm pretty sure that the message has gotten out now to most people that this was not in any way a failure of renewable energy. If anything, it was a failure of our current antiquated fossil fuel-driven electric grid, especially in the case of Texas, which has chosen to isolate itself from the rest of the country. So I think people in the middle are probably getting that message. I don't think that this messaging is going to win over new converts to the anti-renewable side of things. I think what it's intended to do is to just sort of intensify the passion of their base in opposing you know, renewable energy and in denying that climate change is yet a meaningful threat. And what about Bill Gates's book and his argument that we need a lot of new big technological breakthroughs if we're really going to be able to lower emissions in the time that we need to lower them? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's great that Bill Gates is sort of using his platform to raise awareness about the climate crisis. I applaud him for doing that. At the same time, in his book, uh, he provides a very different prescription from the one that I do. Um, he is overly, in my view, dismissive of the potential for renewable energy. And look, there are peer-reviewed studies, very credible studies that show we can get 80% of the way there, renewables only, all of our electricity generated from renewables only, 80% of the way there by, uh, you know, a decade from now and 100% by 2050. So we can do it with renewables alone. And there's literature on that that he ignores in his book. You know, maybe it's inconvenient to sort of his narrative. So he downplays the potential for renewable energy properly scaled up and properly incentivized to get us where we need to go. And by understating and downplaying the role that renewable energy can play, he is forced to promote other solutions, other much riskier prescriptions, in my view, like geoengineering, massively interfering with the global climate system by pumping sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere to block out some of the sunlight or other schemes that are intended sort of as a cover-up or technology to pull massive amounts of uh, carbon out of the atmosphere, technology that doesn't exist yet, and an over-reliance on nuclear energy, which comes with its own risks. Because he underestimates the role that renewable energy can play, he ends up favoring, in my view, a much riskier path forward to avoiding climate crisis. Would you actually describe him as a climate inactivist? No, I would say that Bill Gates has shown quite a bit of growth. I characterize in my book some of his earlier stances, which I think were deeply misguided. For example, you know, his statement that we need a miracle, that somehow there's no way that existing technology can get us where we need to go. And he was dismissive of the role of regulation and government action. I would say in his latest book, he's come quite a ways from that position. And he embraces that this is not entirely a technocratic problem, that it's a sociopolitical problem as well. I think he accepts that. I think he recognizes we need political action. And so I'm with him on that. I think there's an area of agreement. Where there's disagreement is his overly technocratic prescription for what the solution going forward is. 
Now, you wrote a lot of the book while you were in my home country of Australia, and you witnessed firsthand both last year's devastating bushfires and the high levels of climate denialism that are, in fact, still evident there. But despite that, and despite all the problems you outline in your book, Michael, you're still basically cautiously optimistic that we're close to a tipping point on climate action. Why is that? Yeah. So, you know, a number of things have come together that I think are very favorable for climate action. And when I wrote the book, as you say, that was sort of during the black summer down in Australia where I was on sabbatical. And so I was witnessing perhaps some of those profound, dangerous impacts that we've yet encountered with climate change in those bushfires that blanketed the continent. There were reasons for great concern. But at the same time, I could sense that there was a shift in the political winds. First of all, that there was a greater awareness of the threat of climate change because of that black summer that Australians had lived through. But also in the United States, a favorable shift in the political winds, which was ultimately realized. Uh, The book went to press in August, but by the time it came out in January, of course, we had a new president in Joe Biden who has made a remarkably bold commitment to climate action in the early days of his presidency, focusing even more attention than climate advocates expected he would, given all the other crises that we're dealing with, the pandemic, problems with racial intolerance, racial justice. We've got a lot of problems in the United States right now that we have to work on. But climate change has been foremost in the messaging of the Biden administration and more than anything else, sort of appointing John Kerry as the special envoy on climate, the climate czar, and drawing upon his rich diplomatic bona fides and experiences to lead our effort and to reestablish, I think more than anything else, to the rest of the world that the United States is back. We are once again willing to lead on what is arguably the greatest crisis we face, the climate crisis. And I think that that actually puts a whole lot of pressure on some of the handful of intransigent actors associated with petrostates like Russia and Saudi Arabia, but also Scott Morrison of Australia, who has not really shown an appetite for supporting meaningful climate action in the past. Just within the past couple months, we've seen quite a bit of shift in his own messaging. Not that he's ready to really do anything meaningful about climate, but he's at least talking a better climate game. And I think that speaks to the renewed pressure that he and other state actors are feeling now that the United States has really returned to a position of action, of bold action on climate. So that combined with the youth climate movement, which was recentered this issue, where it always needed to be about our you know, obligation to future generations not to destroy this planet, the way that these unprecedented weather disasters have vivified the detrimental impacts of climate change for everyone to see. I think that's all come together in a way that puts us in the most favorable position we've been in yet to see meaningful action here in the United States and meaningful global action. But there are still these obstacles in our way. And that's really why I wrote the book, because I feel like we're so close. And yet we do have these obstacles in our way, these various tactics used by the inactivists to keep us addicted to fossil fuels, or at least to slow down this transition away from fossil fuels. We need to recognize those tactics. We need to fight back against them precisely because we do have this amazing opportunity now to finally see the action necessary to avert the climate crisis. That was Professor Michael Mann ending this edition of the Rackman Review. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can find the Reckman Review in all the usual podcast apps.